heard a story, I read a story this week about an individual who had enough faith to skydive without a parachute. <laughs> How about that? Luke Akins is the name. He intentionally took a skydive without a parachute uh, from 25,000 feet in the air. He landed in, in a net 100 feet by 100 feet set up to catch him. He also landed at a terminal velocity of 120 miles per hour. Utterly crazy and even stupid, right? The guy has a wife and a four-year-old son. Now, as crazy as that sounds, the truth is there was a lot of training and practice behind this incredible leap. This individual, this Luke, has 18,000 jumps to his credit. He also prepared for the jump by doing dozens of jumps where he got to special permission to pull the ripcord later than normal at the, at the last possible second, and he, he hit a, a targets a lot smaller than this 100-foot by 100-foot net. So he was consistently hitting this much smaller target. He also made the point that while his jump may have pushed the limits of what is considered humanly possible, and though some may describe him as crazy, he said with the right training, testing, planning, and preparation, we can do things that we don't think are possible. What a fascinating story. And I, I think the thing is, when it comes to our faith as Christians, while it can often be characterized as walking by faith, and sometimes we talk about taking that, that, like, that leap of faith, the truth is, that leap of faith is not necessarily a blind leap into the dark. It's not as crazy as it maybe sounds to some people. True, the Bible says that faith uh, says that the evidence of th faith is the evidence of things not seen. Yet our faith can see, can it not, right? Our faith can see Christ. It can see the cross. It can see the empty tomb. Our faith can see what the scriptures say. Our faith can see all of creation around us. Our faith can see an invisible God. So in the end, there is actually something undergirding our faith, something that helps us believe there is actually a launching pad to our leaps of faith. And so we're going to start this new series today, Defending the Faith. And we're going to talk today about a reasonable God. But this is a, a new series we're starting, and it's based on this idea of rational answers to a reasonable faith. So look at this verse here in 1 Peter 3.15. It is our key verse for the series. And here's what it says in 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so the question I have this morning is, do you have hope? Like, do you have a genuine hope? We live in a world filled with so much despair. In fact, I, I would say there's more people today, a lot more people today in the world that have despair than probably have hope. I wonder, do you have hope? The world is looking for this hope. And this is where our faith comes in. As a Christian, we have a faith that produces a hope. Like we have a, a launching pad for those leaps of faith. We, we have a faith that produces a genuine, guaranteed, absolute hope. And it's entirely reasonable when we look at what we believe and why we believe, it's entirely reasonable that we would have hope. It really is. That we would have both faith and hope. Now, of course, the world, where the world sets, when they look at their lives, when they look at their world, when they look at their future, they don't have the guarantees we do. The best that they can do, because for them, hope is like a wish or a dream. I've said this a million times. Hope is like a wish or a dream. And so for them, they hope that they have hope. Like, they, they hope. I, I, I hope I have hope. And that's about the extent of where they are. And of course, they don't. Apart from Christ, they don't have it. No one has any hope. 
That's the reality. That's the understanding. Just take this idea for a minute. Consider that we're the, we're the, the guy doing that sky dive. We're, we're the guy doing the jumping out of the plane, right? We got to hit that little target down there. And let's say that little target represents eternity, right? And so, and so I mean, that's pretty scary thing. Well, here, here's really the biblical analogy is what if when you jumped out of that plane, you actually put your life in someone else's hands and someone else jumped out who was guaranteed to never miss that target. Like, they would absolutely never miss it and if they hit it once, that's all that mattered. That's really the, the, where our faith is. We have this hope because we put our life into someone else's hands, into the hands of our creator, in the hands of our redeemer and he is faithful and he never misses eternity's mark. By extension, the Bible tells us that there is no one on the earth, no matter how good, no matter how hard they practice or try or prepare, no one's good enough to ever hit that target for eternity. And so they have no hope. They, they ultimately don't have any hope besides a wish and a dream behind the fact that they hope they have hope. So the bottom line is, as a Christian, I have a faith that produces a hope because I have put my life in someone else's hand and this hope is entirely reasonable. And by extension then, it's entirely reasonable that I should be able to tell somebody else why I have hope. Can you tell somebody else why you have hope and in sometimes a world of despair? This really is the underlying premise of this series right here. To know what you believe and why you have hope and to be able to communicate your belief and your hope. Can you communicate your belief, your faith? Can you communicate your hope why you have it? Why you believe what you believe? That's the premise of this series in a world filled with despair where people need hope. Can you communicate yours? Now there's a word that kind of, <coughs> excuse me, kind of defines this uh, series a little bit, this topic, and it's the word apologetics, which can sound like a scary word, a big academic word, apologetics, whoa. But it's really a very simple concept. It's reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or religious doctrine. And so when it comes to our faith, apologetics is, is just those reasoned arguments or writings that support it. Maybe actually in a more, did I put it up here? I did. In a more simple way, the reason why we believe what we believe and why we have the hope that we do. Apologetics, really. Why do I believe what I believe and why do I have the hope that Peter says I should have in Christ. That's the simple reality. And today we're going to start with looking at a, at a reasonable God. Like, like God is reasonable in the sense that he, he can be reasoned. He can be studied and reasoned and scrutinized and he will pass the test in more ways than we would ever realize. So there is more than enough evidence for the faith that we have and the hope that it produces. More than enough evidence for the faith that we have and the hope that it produces. Give me, let me give you a couple of verses here about apologetics that kind of can kind of help us just kind of get started. Uh, G, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, writes one little tiny book at the end of the Bible. He says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're to contend for the faith. Why? Because it's always been under attack. It's under attack today, but it's always been under attack. Paul writes to the 
to the elders of the church in the book of Titus he says this about elders he the church elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it we need to know what we believe why we believe it and why it gives us hope now, let me just say one thing about this series. It won't be a deep series. This won't be like over our head, like real, real academic-like. This is going to be preaching. This is going to be exhortation. But we are going to talk and we are going to learn some things in here and then we're going to see how that gives us hope, how that exhorts us in the way that we live our life. You could get really deep on this. Like I, I could spend the next six weeks talking about who God is and digging into who God is and tearing apart this topic uh, we're going to do it in one Sunday. We're going to keep it simple. And part of the, part of the reason is, is when it comes to you defending your faith, you're not dealing with a lot of scientific, you know, really super smart academic. You're dealing with everyday people just like you who have simple questions to sometimes confuse, simple, who need simple answers to sometimes confusing questions. And we're going to do that. Simple answers to confront the common questions that people have and the objections that they raise, starting today, again, with the nature of God. One last thing. At the end of the message, I'm going to give you one big question that not always, but often, can, can really end any debate that you, that you, you might be in. You might be getting, somebody might be challenging your faith. There's one question that could quite possibly end that debate real simply, real quickly. And so we will, uh, I'll give you that at the end. That's kind of a, a little teaser, but it's a, a powerful question and we'll see more on that. Here's today's big idea, looking at, okay, it takes more faith to deny God's existence than it does to believe in him. We'll see that today. It takes more faith to deny God's existence than it does to actually believe in him. We'll see today how we can be so certain and so confident there is a God. The truth is we live in an increasingly uh, uh, agnostic and uh, atheistic world. We do. And I don't think I put them on here. I should have, but I didn't. But he, he, an agnostic is a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or nature of God. They, they claim neither faith or disbelief in God. It's like you just can't know. It's an agnostic. And an atheist, you probably know an atheist, a person who disbelieves or lacks belief in the existence of God or God. So they just say God is not real. They don't believe there is any such thing as God. Which stands in stark contrast to you and I as Christians, right? Who believe you can not only know God, you can have a personal relationship with him. Like how wild is that? How great of a contrast is that indeed? So, Three movements today. We're going to look at this in three movements. We'll look at uh, that God is reasonable, like you can argue God out. You can see that we'll see that God is provable. We'll look at the arguments for God, not just against Him. And then we'll see that God is desirable. We'll actually look at the arguments against unbelief. So, first movement God is reasonable. The arguments against God. I'll just give you the five most common arguments, and we'll run through these really quickly. And uh, we will toss some scriptures in. And just a, just a note, here's, what the Bible, here's how the Bible kind of frames the atheist or the agnostic type person. A couple of scriptures. Psalms 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Psalms 10.4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So the Bible is real clear that if you are an atheist and you just believe there is no God, you're just a fool. <laughs> you're just a fool. The Bible's not very kind, is it? pretty straightforward and we see part of that narrative is that part of it is pride like sometimes pride underlies why why a person doesn't believe in god it's just their pride 
because they do not seek him and they just simply say there is no God. And the truth is, the reality is anybody can see God who wants to. God has not hidden himself. You open up your eyes and look around creation, you can see God. He smacks you in the face every day. The Bible says that. It makes it clear that anybody can see God. Anybody can respond to God. God has not excluded anyone from the ability and the opportunity to join his family. So let's consider the main arguments here against God. The first one is the destiny of the unbeliever argument. Real simple, this is hell. A lot of people, you talk about the Bible and the Bible says hell and that's the final destination for those who don't put their faith and trust in Christ and people are like, sorry, how does that work? If God's all loving and God's all kind and yeah, I just don't believe that and so they just discredit God because they can't accept the reality of hell. And the problem here is that they, they're right, God is loving but he's also just. And they discredit half of who God is, or not half of who God is, they just reject who God is. He's all loving, he's all just. And so, and when you look at churches today, you find the churches today that are the most progressive, that adopt the most progressive, kind of moving away from the doctrines of Scripture. This is one of the first ones to fall. Before they, you know, fall into other great, um, great apostasy, we would almost say, one of the first things to go is, well, there's just not, hell doesn't exist because God's loving and they just buy into this argument. And, I, and I'll say this, what I said last week in Psalm 22, while I believe in a literal fire and a literal hell, the reality is I think there is something that's more significant than that literal fire and that's being separated from God in his goodness and glory. Just imagine an existence where there is not an ounce of goodness, an ounce of love, an ounce of glory. That is hell. That is hell. And so we can sometimes get caught up in there's this literal fire burning us for all of eternity. The real issue is you are separated from God, his goodness and glory for all of, etern of eternity. Here's a second common argument, the insufficiency of man argument. This simply says that, okay, if, God, if a holy and perfect and powerful and righteous God made a, made a creation, made a being, he certainly wouldn't look like us, would he? All of our faults and all of our failures and all of our sin and all of our ugliness. And so, and we can answer that one very quickly, very easily, right? Because we know that God did make us in his image just like him. But there's this tree in the Garden of Eden where God gave us a choice. And we made a poor choice and we have fallen. And so we are no longer in his image. Here's the third common argument, the no reason argument. This is the, the basic thing that says if there is a God that is all-knowing, all-powerful, uh, if the God that we describe from the Bible, he would already be satisfied. He would have no need to create us. Like there's no reason for him to create us. He'd have everything he needed himself. I would agree with that, right? There was no reason to create us. So why did God create us? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted someone that he could pour his goodness out upon and he could reveal his glory in. Someone to pour his, someone to lavish his goodness on and to reveal his glory in. That is why God created you and me. Didn't need to create us. He wanted to create us because he's a good God who has all of these blessings and he created you just to pour those blessings out upon your life. That is the reality. So yeah. Here's the, 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 the fourth argument. It is the multiplicity argument. Th this one basically says, okay, you have all, you have all these gods, You've, you've got Islam and Hindu and the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. You have all of these gods. 
and none of them can get it right. None of them can agree. They all contradict each other. So in the end, no one's right. Like nobody's right. There's just not a God. If there was a God, we wouldn't have so many views of him. And the, the reality, this also argues that kind of like throughout history, like most theistic religions and their accompanying God or gods are now considered to be in error, inaccurate, or invalid. The implication then with so many religions and gods found to be illogical, fallacious, or faulty, all gods must be as such. Now, of course, our Bible clearly pushes back on this. Because you know what our Bible says? Our Bible agrees. Yeah, there are a lot of gods. There's a lot of false gods. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God. The Bible says actually, yeah, there's a lot of gods, but there's only one true God. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There's one God, he's a Trinitarian God. He is Father and he is Son and also Spirit. But look at this one, 1 Peter 8, 4 and 5, speaking about the food offered to idols. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there be there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so the Bible actually agrees. There's all kinds of gods. There's a multiplicity of gods. They're all false. There's just one true God. And that's the reality. Now this brings us probably to the biggest argument and the greatest objection to Christianity and to a belief in in God in particular. And what would that be? That would be, we talked about it last week quite a bit, the evil and suffering argument. The idea is, of course, if God is all-loving and all-powerful and all-present, well, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Clearly the argument goes that God cannot be real because if he was real we would not suffer like we do. He wouldn't let this kind of mess go on. Now, we spent the last two Sundays dealing with this in the book of Psalms, did we not? And we we acknowledge that there is evil and suffering in the world, and yet at the same time, we acknowledge there is evil and suffering in the world, and yet at the same time, this is what answers the very question for us, right? While this argument can be a struggle for even ourselves, the truth is, it's one of the easiest arguments to debunk when you look around you at the evil and suffering because God is not indifferent to our suffering. God is not divorced from our suffering. He is not distant from our suffering. He actually joined us in our suffering. Like he joined us in our suffering and he defeated that evil at the cross. Now we haven't realized the full implications of that victory yet, but we will one day. That victory has not been fully realized, but it will be. And so this evil and suffering argument is also seen in this sense is that, well, we wouldn't know what evil and suffering was without a holy and a good God. Like, how do we know that we're suffering? Because God, who is good, created us to pour out his goodness on us, and we know what goodness is from the Father, and now we know what suffering is. So the evil and suffering argument doesn't disprove God, it actually proves God. And I think that's really, really, really powerful. So again, today's big idea simply is this. It takes more faith to deny God's existence than it does to believe in him. 
Now, as we go forward in this, we're going to see how these kind of overlap, and we'll look at the evidence for God. It will push back on some of those arguments against God, and we're going to see next that God is indeed provable. And we'll look at the arguments for God, and why do you believe in God? And if someone challenges your faith, can you tell them why you believe in God? Like, oh, I am confident, baby. I know why I believe in God. I know why I have hope. And I'm going to take probably, again, the five most common arguments for God and the ones that are the simplest and the easiest to just unpack. Like I said, you can get very deep and you can study this stuff and and just be lost. And we're not looking to do that. We're looking at the basic arguments for why God exists. Here's the first one. I've mentioned this in the past, the Kalam cosmological argument. Kalam is a guy that they named this off of. And it, it, is a, it is an argument that comes with three lines, two premises, and leads to one logical conclusion. And, the, and, so, and so here's the two premises, one and two, is one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. So if you see something, you're like, oh, wow, that came from somebody or came from somewhere. Like, for instance, if you were driving through a desert, right? You're just out driving through the desert, and, all, and there's nothing around you, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, there's a house sitting over there in the desert. You'd be like, okay, somebody build a house in the desert. Who put that house in the desert? Why would they, why would they put a house in the desert? That's crazy. It would be illogical to think that just popped out of nowhere. And so that's the premise. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. And so this house in the desert, someone brought it to be. And the universe then, the second premise here, is that the universe began to exist. Like you can look at the universe and you can say, the universe began to exist. And so because the universe exists, it has a a cause. Like somebody put the universe here. It didn't just pop out on its own. And so the question then is, what caused the universe? Or who put the house in the desert? Someone or something had to. Now, this is really fascinating because consider what the universe is made of. This is really kind of mind-blowing. Oh, well, here's the third implication then, right? The third, this is the logical conclusion of those two premises. The universe has a cause. So whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. And so the universe has to have a cause. And of course, the question is, what is that cause? Who is that cause? We believe it is God. Now, here's what's so fascinating. Look at, look at this. What, what is the universe made of? Of time and space and matter and energy. And who does that describe? Describes our God, right? Like, we have a God who is eternal. He is timeless. We have a God who is transcendent. He is infinite beyond space. We have a God who is immaterial. He is a spirit. And we have a God who is all-powerful he's he's infinite with unlimited energy that is our god our god actually describes the universe we live in so where'd the universe come from it's not a leap to say that the eternal transcendent immaterial all-powerful god put the universe here and what's even more amazing the first verse of the bible tells us this in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth in the beginning god created that's the power right God created, slide's a little off there. God created, that's the power. And what did he create? In the beginning, he created time. He created the heavens, space, and he created the earth matter. That's, and so that's the Kalam cosmological argument, a big word for a simple little truth that you would do well to know. Here's a second argument, the design argument. And this is simply the argument that says when you take together math and science and the whole of creation, everything points to a divine creator. 
Take a fully functioning computer, right? And it's working and no one would believe that like a tornado could rip through a junkyard and assemble a fully functioning computer. Like that would be crazy. And yet, how many in our world today don't believe that some big bang apart from God just put all this together and just assembled all this in all of its design? It's just crazy. That is just crazy. The design argument. The design argument looks at like two plus two is four. The design argument looks at 88 keys on a piano and all the chords and all the scales. And the, the divine argument looks at all the frequencies that run throughout creation. It looks at you and it looks at your fingertips and, 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 and your fingerprints. It looks at your unique DNA, which is a mathematical number. It looks at all of this and says, hey, there is a designer behind all of creation. Even within the human body, we see this wonder of intelligent design and even in some of the stupidest people. Have you heard the latest? Did you know on TikTok, there's a recipe you can cook your chicken in NyQuil? Yeah, don't do it. That's the new fad. Don't do it. Stupid people out there. But in that stupid person is the unique design. The intelligent design of a creator. Once when a little girl asked Albert Einstein if scientists pray, listen to this, uh, Einstein replied in part, everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifested in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of a man and one in the face of which, with, face of which we with our modest powers must feel humble. Einstein goes on. Then, then in, in an interview before his 50th birthday, Einstein was asked if he believed in God. Einstein said the following. I'm not an atheist. The problem involved is too vast for our limited minds. We are in the pos position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. He does not know how. He does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. We see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly understand these laws. Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. That's the divine argument for God. Here's the moral argument for God. We kind of talked about this already, but it's really simply this. When you look at the evil and suffering in the world and, and it's the moral argument just simply says, how do we know there's right and wrong? How do we know there's good and evil? The Bible tells us that God put a tree in the garden, said avoid it. It's the tree of right and wrong. It's the tree of good and evil. You don't want to know good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. We ate from that tree. Even back in the book of Genesis, you have Cain and you have Abel, right? two brothers and Cain kills Abel and somehow Cain knows that he did the wrong thing how does he know how do we have a conscience how do we know good from evil because there is this moral argument for a God that if there's no God there would be no right and wrong there would be no I mean why would we, we couldn't say anything was right or wrong there's nothing to govern us. Then there is the religious nature argument. This goes back to the multiplicity, right? There's all of these, all of these religions, so nobody must be right. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Like you go back to your Bible, you'll find out back, like in Genesis 4, you'll find out back then, they were worshiping all kinds of gods. Like there is something instinctive in us 
has always been in man to just worship God. Now, maybe they're not worshiping the one true God. Maybe they haven't found the one true God, but there's something instinctively in us because the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in our heart, created us in God's image. We just instinctively are trying to find God. We won't seek for God. We'll only seek to Him because He, he seeks us out. We, we're, we're responding to His creation. We're responding to His call. And the reality is, it's just there's... Throughout history, man has always gravitated to try to find something to worship. Something to worship. In fact, I love this in Acts 17. Remember this, Paul at, at Mars Hill there in Athens. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, uh, uh, that's not how you say it, but said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so Paul even said, Athens had all these gods they worship. There's the one to the unknown God. And Paul said, I know who that God is. I can point you to him. I can tell you who he is. He is the designer. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is. Here's the last argument for God and probably the most powerful argument. Excuse me, it is the experiential argument. The greatest evidence for God ultimately is this experiential God, those who have claimed to experience Him personally. Now, I understand we can't elevate our experiences uh, with God over Scripture. Like any experiences we have with God have to correlate with Scripture. But my point here is throughout Bible, throughout the Bible, God is a personal God who had a personal relationship with person after person after person. People claim to have had a personal relationship with their creator. So much so it is hard to deny this God is real. Here's Paul's testimony in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, the context here is he's just explaining how Christ, after the resurrection, was seen by this person and that person and that person and that person. And then 500 people saw the resurrected Christ alive and said, he has risen from the dead. And here's Paul's testimony. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me in those visions he had, right? About a year later, he has these visions. He struck down on the road to Damascus. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I mean, think about the experience. He's persecuting believers, has a personal experience with God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And in, in your defending your faith, this will be a powerful argument when you can simply sit back and you can share your testimony of how you have experienced God in a very personal sense in your life, how God has encountered you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your hardship, how God has been there in your life. Wow. And let me just say this, when you think about this experiential God, you know what the greatest evidence for God is in regards to this? The greatest evidence for the Father is the Son. The greatest evidence for the Father is indeed the Son. The fact that Jesus Christ came and took on flesh and blood and entered our story and joined us in our suffering. That's how we know God is personal and God is real and we can experience Him as so many did as they experienced His resurrection. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of God revealed through Christ and now can be revealed through us. 
We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus Christ, he has made him known. We can experience this grand creator, this, this incredible Father, very personally through the Son. All of these arguments for God add, are important, add, add another layer to the validity and authenticity of God. Again, the question, though, is greater than whether or not God exists, but ultimately what God is like, and we see that in Christ. Ray Pritchard from Believing Ministries uh, shares this. I thought this was really interesting. Not long ago, I had breakfast with an atheist. It turned out to be the most enlightening experience. Although we were meeting for the first time, I immediately came to appreciate his many positive qualities. He was charming, friendly, positive, talkative, and obviously very well educated. He was raised Catholic, attended a Catholic high school, and two excellent Catholic universities. Sometime during his college years, he abandoned not only the Christian faith, but his belief in God. He actually converted from Christianity to atheism. He truly believes there is no God. As we talked, he kept emphasizing that only this life has meaning. Since there is no life after death, what we do now becomes vitally important. Heaven for him is just a myth that religious people use to comfort themselves in times of trouble. We had a long talk and I learned a great deal from him. It's always useful to see yourself as others see you. I came away from our time together with three fundamental observations. How difficult it is to be an atheist, how hard you must work to keep your faith, and how careful you must be lest you start believing in God. (laughs) Toward the end of our time together, I asked him what he thought about uh, Jesus Christ. He seemed a bit surprised by that question, as if it had no relevance to the question of God's existence. It was my turn to be surprised when he told me that he hadn't thought about Jesus very much one way or the other. He then ventured to say that Jesus was probably a great man and a learned teacher, but he probably never meant to start a religion. That happened after he died and his followers wanted to honor his memory. Upon hearing that, I decided to press the point. What about his resurrection? What if he really did rise from the dead? My friend stopped for a moment, thought a bit, and then a smile crossed his face. Well, we'd have a problem then, wouldn't we? We'd have a problem then. You see, as we seek to prove God, Jesus really is the best evidence. The resurrection proves God and that he is God in so many ways. So we have seen that God is reasonable, even when the world argues against him. We have seen that God is provable. It's easy to make the case for him. And we also have seen our big idea, right? It takes more faith to deny God's existence than it does to believe in him. Okay, let's look at the third and final movement today. Basically, simply, these are the arguments against unbelief, right? Five arguments against atheistic unbelief and those who claim it. Five simple arguments for why unbelief is so implausible and also quite damaging to the society and world we live in. For one thing, it, is, it, is, uh, it rejects the obvious and suppresses the truth. Like, unbelief just rejects the obvious and suppresses the truth. How can you look around you and say, yeah, there's no creator. There's no God. No one's in charge of anything. It just all happened. Romans 1.18, Paul dealt with this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Right? Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You're just ignoring the obvious and you're suppressing the truth when you deny there is a God in the world that we live in. He goes on in Romans 1, because look at this, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than, than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see what's going on here? Like, the unbeliever, they worship creation more than the one who created it. They worship the beasts of the field or whatever it is more than they worship the, the God who created everything. In fact, isn't that fascinating that throughout history, especially throughout the Bible, like all the false religions that existed, what did they worship? The sun, the moon, the God of harvest, the fertility God. They worshiped all of these things. They worshiped creation and not the creator. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That Ray Pritchard again, I read his article a minute ago. Listen to what he says about atheism. It, I might have put it here. No, I didn't. It produces intellectual arrogance because no one knows enough to say conclusively, I can prove that God does not exist. Here are two simple questions to ask anyone who claims that God does not exist. What percentage of knowledge of the universe do you possess? If they are honest, they must reply that their knowledge of the universe is extremely limited. It's a micron of a proton of a molecule of a sliver of a tiny fraction of one millionth of one percent of all the knowledge available in the entire universe. Is it possible that God might exist outside of your tiny sliver of knowledge? Again, if they are honest, they must answer yes. When you think about it, our knowledge is so limited that no one knows enough to say with certainty that God does not exist. In fact, you'd have to be God in order to deny his existence. That's good. And the deeper point being that it is far easier to prove God exists than to prove that he does not exist. In fact, you can't prove. It's impossible to prove that God doesn't exist. Here's the third Argument for this atheistic unbelief right here, right? Or second one. It is, oh, yeah, it is both ignorant and arrogant. I jumped ahead there, sorry. That was the second argument. I, I, I mixed the first two because they go together because this, this whole thing of suppressing the truth and ignoring the obvious is ignorant and, argue, and arrogant. And so I, I mixed those two together. That was the second, if you're keeping notes there, the second argument against God. Here is the third argument and there it is i did have it on the screen got ahead of myself number three it is an egocentric man-centered philosophy unbelief this atheistic unbelief it is an egocentric man-centered philosophy and that's logical right if there's no god to focus on what do you have left to focus on look in the mirror it's me it's all about me. And when you think about the light, our light today, you think about relationships today, you think about what's, what's the, the, the core of all broken relationships today, what is it? Self-centeredness, selfishness, us, me. It's, it's so devastating to society when you say there is no God that can unite us and make us one and that we can focus on. Now because there is a God, despite what that unbeliever may contend, that means that 
that that unbeliever is at least to some degree governed by an internal conscience and an outward moral law in government. Which again proves there is a God from where else did we get this conscience or law. Here's a fourth argument. It is void of hope. It really is atheism, uh, agnosticism, really. It is the religion of despair. And it is a religion. Humanism, the worship of self, that's a religion. You're worshiping something. Religion, it's a, what are you worshiping in religion? Nothing. It's a, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a faith. You're putting your faith in what? Nothing. I believe in nothing. It is a religion, regardless of how they might view it. And it is void of hope. It is a religion of despair. Paul, when he was talking about the Gentiles, right? So God calls the Jews and has a relationship with the Jews and they continually re- deny him and reject him and they crucify Christ and they reject the Holy Spirit of Pentecost and so God turns around and then God says, okay, I'm going to give the Gentiles an opportunity here. I'm going to open the door to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. They can both come to me through the cross and here's exactly how Paul says this to the Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time before the cross separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see the correlation between having no hope and being without God. If you are without God, you have no hope. If you are in Christ, you have a guaranteed hope. You'll hit that target if you jump out of that plane You'll hit, it every, you'll, you'll, you'll hit it once and for all because you are in the hands of your, you have put your hands in someone else's life. So in a world of despair, there is no hope, but in Christ, there is indeed hope. And here's the final, final really argument against unbelief. It has no answers for the deepest questions of life. That's why it's a hopeless religion. It has no answer for the deepest, what are the deepest questions of life? What are they? Can can you name them? For instance, like, who am I? Like, what is my identity? Right? Can't answer that one. Like, why am I here? What is my purpose? Can't answer that one. Like, uh, how about this? Why do I matter? What is my significance? Can't, Can't answer that one. Or, does anyone love me? What is my worth? What is my value? And then finally, what happens when I die? What about eternity? And I'm telling you, this atheistic unbelief, like it it has no answer for the deepest questions of life. It's a hopeless religion of despair. That is the reality. You see, God answers every one of those questions for us. He is my identity, my purpose, my significance, my value, my eternity. He is my creator who made me for his goodness and his glory. And as we work our way through this series, just know that we will build on today's message and we will see more evidence for the character of God. We will undergird the evidence in this message with the overwhelming evidence that is found in God's word. The big question I had today starting was, do you start with the chicken or the egg, right? That that old argument, like, do I start with the word of God or do I start with the one who wrote the word of God? Because we used all these scriptures today and it's like someone might say, well, the word's not true. And so do you start and prove the word or we started with God? Next week, we'll prove that the word is actually reliable, trustworthy, dependable, and that everything it says about God is true. So what do we learn today? It takes more faith to deny God's existence than it does to believe in Him. It clearly does. We saw that God is reasonable. 
We looked at the arguments against God. We saw that God is provable, the arguments for God, and we saw that God is desirable, the arguments against unbelief. Why we really desire God, why we really want a relationship with God. That's the reality. You see, it is is more than just proving there is a God. It is about proving there is one true and good God, the God of the Bible. The God we don't have to be afraid of, the God that does not keep his distance, the God who is not removed from us, but the God who actually has entered our story. The God who didn't need us, but wanted us. He wants to lavish his goodness on us and reveal his glory in us. We worship again, again, the God who entered our story. And why did he enter our story? so he could make right what we had broken, so he could deal with our sin problem, our shame problem, our fear, hate, and worry problem, our death problem, so he could give us hope. Let me leave you with two things. Uh, A final question and then a closing illustration here. So I said earlier, there's this one question that can kind of like end any debate. You're in a debate with somebody and there's this one question, not always, but sometimes this question can just end the debate. It, It can just shut the debate down. And here's what the question is. If I or anyone else could prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was real and that his word was true, would you believe in him? And sadly, there are a lot of people who would say, well, actually, no. I don't care if God is real. Like in the end, I don't care because you know what? I don't want to have to live according to the standards of this book. I don't want to, I don't want to adopt that lifestyle. I don't want to have to... Now, even if you prove God was true and prove God was real and eternity was real and hell was real and everything, you prove all the stuff we talked about today, yeah, I still wouldn't believe in him. Well, then, you know, you pretty much you know your time is done there. Like, yeah, okay, I'll pray for you and I'll move on. Because, you know, that's a debate that's going nowhere. Sadly, that person wants to be the Lord of his own universe. And that is a really sad thing. For that person, it's not a faith issue or a belief issue or a proof issue. It is a me issue. They want to be the God of their own universe and the Lord of their own life. Let me leave you with one final illustration. Go back back to what is the most common argument against God, as well as the hardest to handle personally and answer for others. I'm talking about the evil and suffering argument, right? Like God can't be real because of all the evil and suffering in the world. Well, in the Bible, there is one man outside of Christ who is the icon for suffering, and that would probably be Job. He has an entire book, over, over 40 chapters actually, declined or dedicated to his suffering, his story of suffering and loss. You probably know the story. Job loves God faithfully, worships him passionately. One day Satan approaches God and says that Job's worship is not sincere. He only worships God because God is so good to him. Satan contends that if God let him take all Job's blessings away and in a sense put a curse on his life, Job would turn on God. So God agrees and Satan inflicts and Job suffers. In the end, Job passes the test and remains faithful to God. Satan was proven wrong. Yet what if we have maybe missed an angle to this iconic story? What if in the end, Job wasn't the only one being tested What if God was? And what if in the end, God was proven to be faithful? Can this not be Job's testimony? That despite all the pain inflicted, all the loss experienced, and all the suffering endured, that God was still his God and was still faithful. Let me give you two passages that are out on the screen. 
Here's two testimonies from Job. Job 12, 7, Job says this, but ask the beasts and they will teach you, the birds of heaven and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tests food? Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in lengths of days. And finally, in his very last chapter of his book, he he says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, here's the deal. Job had two options in the middle of his suffering. He could worship the one inflicting the pain or he could worship the one who promised hope and healing. You see, what if Job's story and our story is not as much about testing Job as it is about proving God? Let's pray. God, thank you, thank you, thank you that we can look at creation and we can see you. You are there that we can look into our personal experiences even in our darkest hours of suffering and know you are there. You went to the cross. You, took, you entered our story. You're, you're, you know what we're going through. And we can find you to be faithful even when the enemy wants us to turn our back on you and run from you and, and blame you. We know. We know where all evil comes from. We know where all goodness comes from. We know that we wouldn't know evil if it was not for the goodness you have poured out upon us in this world today. God, I pray today as we go through this series, you'll strengthen our faith. You'll cause us to just find the ability to defend, to be able to defend not only our faith, but our hope. That we'll, we'll leave this series in seven, eight weeks with more hope than we entered it. That in the midst of a dark world of, of despair and trial and adversity, we'll be all the more hopeful every day. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Very good.